Before we start, if this is not the first time you are listening to Sashimi, don't forget to rate the podcast with appropriate number of stars. And you know what I mean by appropriate. If it is your first time, I have something extra for you. You can actually receive transcripts of interviews and announcements of future guests by signing up at sashimi.cloud. And now we start. Welcome to Season A of Sashimi. For episode 13, I interviewed Mike Lyon, the founder and managing director of VistaPoint Advisors, an investment bank exclusively focused on software and internet. We discussed main drivers of SaaS valuation and how revenue models may influence it, private equity funds that are active in this space, what founders need to fix prior to selling SaaS companies, how they should handle inbound calls from potential investors, and many other things. Enjoy. Mike, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Asner, thanks for having me. Super excited about being with you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, I've uh, seen quite a few mentions of uh, VistaPoint Advisors uh, lately. You've done at least four deals just in the last month. So I thought, like, okay, I need to speak to these guys for sure. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and VistaPoint Advisor. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And again, good to be with you. We started about 10 years ago with kind of a singular singular focus on founders and more specifically founders that are a little bit more bootstrapped in terms of how they're growing the business. I had spent a while at um, Citigroup in New York working on really large M&A deals. And one of the things I noticed is that investment banking and M&A advisory, I thought was really set up for the institutions, the VC firms and the private equity firms. And frankly, founders weren't getting a really good product um, because bankers are more beholden to the people who are either paying them on the buy side or hiring them repeatedly. So we started this to point with the idea of advising these founders and focusing on running a really competitive process without any conflicts when we're advising companies. That's been the genesis of our business. We pretty much do software and internet type transactions, although lately, probably 85, 90% of our deals our software, and more specifically SaaS. How do you source these deals? Do you contact every single bootstrapped software company in the universe? Um, not every one of them. There, there are a lot. Um, a lot of what we focus on are trying to find the category leaders that are effectively founder-led, right? They haven't raised $40, $50 million of VC of private equity money. And that's actually a much bigger list than you would suspect in terms of companies that fit that profile. So we've developed some technology internally to try and identify who those companies might be. And then instead of spending our time pitching kind of private equity and VC firms on their portfolio company, our team spends a lot of time talking to founders, building relationships. So it'd be very common for us to talk to a company for three or four years, you know, provide some free advice along the way. And then when they're looking to do a transaction, that's usually when we get hired. Well, speaking of transactions, how busy is the SaaS market currently? Yeah. So the SaaS market, as you probably know, is exceedingly busy. If we had to put it on a scale of you know one to 10, I would say eight and a half and nine. And I'm only saying that because we're leaving room for some extra, um, you know, extra activity in the coming. But a big driver of it has been um, obviously COVID and the pandemic. Um, SaaS businesses performed exceedingly well. One of the big concerns I had going into SAS, into the pandemic was, you know, SaaS businesses are valued really highly because of their retention and their stable revenue model. And if those retention rates cracked during COVID, you could see the entire valuation paradigm changing. And that, for the most part, did not happen. Um, there's certainly some verticals, you know, if you look at travel or maybe real estate that suffered a little more. But for the most part, SaaS businesses held up exceedingly well. And that's why you've just seen so much activity, um, you know, in the middle and the end of the pandemic. 
Who are the primary buyers of the companies? It's interesting. It's changed a lot in the past five years. So, you know, if we were talking five or six years ago, I would have largely said, you know, mainly strategic buyers are the ones that went in a competitive process. Right now, we kind of look at our deals in thirds in terms of who the buyer universe is. So a third of them of the transactions happening right now are what I would call a you know kind of a pure play private equity investment. So a PE firms either buying or making an investment directly in one company. The other third, or the second third, I should say, is the traditional strategic buyer. So public company, IBM, right? The acquirer we're all used to. And then the middle third is really kind of a hybrid. And this is really what's changed a lot. It's the private equity-backed strategic. So it's a big private company that could be public in terms of scale. It happens to be owned by a private equity firm. And it has nuances of both of those types of buyers. We kind of put them in a separate bucket. Let's talk about valuation a little bit. What are some qualitative and quantitative characteristics of SaaS companies that actually drive the valuation? Sure, absolutely. And I'll try and talk about these on the quantitative side in terms of descending order of importance. If you just gave a banker kind of one metric to give you a multiple, it would probably come down to the retention rate of the business. And there's many different ways that you can calculate retention, right? There's net retention, there's gross retention, there's other punitive measures of retention, but retention really speaks to the quality of the business. I would also put the size and growth rate of the recurring revenue. The growth rate is actually pretty tied to the retention rate, right? The higher the retention rate of the business, the higher the growth rate should be because it's, you know, when you add new customers, you get a higher pop. So I would say those three are the most important. As you start to go down from that in terms of order importance, um, one metric I would say that people don't pay a lot of attention to is the gross margin of a SaaS business. And the reason why that's important is valuations are so high right now, everyone's trying to be a SaaS business, right? So there's a bunch of services businesses who try to claim they're SaaS businesses. And how do you know they're not SaaS? You look at their gross margins, right? And that really speaks to scalability. On a similar level of importance, I would put things like CAC to LTV. So what's your customer acquisition cost? What's your LTV? And then we start getting into other metrics around you know, maybe um, bottom line profitability. So like EBITDA margin, that tends to be much less important. And it depends on uh, you know, your growth rate. So growth rate and profitability can be fungible. But if I had to say, you know, what are the two or three metrics you give me? I would say growth rate of recurring revenue, the retention rate, and the scale. Scale is definitely a big factor in terms of valuation. On the qualitative side, I would say the most important things would be, and it, it kind of depends on the buyer universe you're talking about or investor universe. If it's a private equity firm, the total addressable market ends up being pretty important. So how big of a business can you build, right? And even though that's a quantitative factor, I think about it more qualitatively. If, if the TAM's not big enough, no one's really going to care about the business, right? Because you can't build a big business. And then one thing that we see our clients do particularly well with is what I would call product market fit. So a lot of times, the reason why these more bootstrap businesses do exceptionally well is they have a great product. They're not particularly sophisticated or have the resources on the sales and marketing side, but they're winning because their product makes sense, not because you know they have the most sophisticated sales and marketing. One thing you mentioned is gross margins and that a lot of companies want to look like uh, SaaS companies. What gross margins would typical pure vanilla SaaS company have? Ideally, we would like to see things in the 85 to 90% plus range. There are some things that end up in gross margin that could drive gross margins lower. 
like, you know, if there's data costs or other things, but generally I think you want to be above 80%, the closer you get to 90 better. And, uh, you know, if there's a lot of labor costs showing up, so things that feel like services and driving you down into the seventies, you're starting to get away from software as a service and into tech enabled services and the valuation paradigms are very, very different there. Interesting. Let's try to understand valuations from a um, quantitative perspective. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say about that is um, sometimes I think it's really hard for founders to compare valuations of different types of deals. So I just want to talk a little bit about that before I answer your question. And what I mean by that is if you, know, if you raise a few million dollars and put it on the balance sheet as a minority deal, you can see the valuations be really high because the investor has lots of protection when they're just putting a little bit of money in and it's staying in the company and they have a preference on that. The valuations I'm going to speak to are really more around lots of liquidity. So think a majority recap where you sell 70% of the company and basically all the money coming in is going to the shareholders or a full sale or even a very large minority recap where maybe you sell 30% of the company. But again, the vast majority of the money that's invested is going out to shareholders. And that's generally what our, our clients are trying to do is do those recaps. But in terms of a spectrum, I kind of think about um, the low end and the high end. And you know, generally, we quote these as a multiple of ARR. That's generally how people think about valuation. But on the low end, I would say you have a business that's maybe sub 5 million in ARR. It has you know, kind of poor net revenue retention, maybe not poor, but not stellar revenue retention. So maybe that's you know, significantly below 100% on the net retention. And it has a total addressable market um, that isn't that attractive, you know, in terms of big market opportunity, and it's growing in the twenty to thirty percent range, right? So those are deals that you actually could have problems getting done. You could have problems finding a buyer for that. But if they were valued and there was someone interested, you're probably looking at something in the you know four to five times ARR range. On the other end of that spectrum, you have a business that's you know, 10, 15, 20 million in ARR, growing 60% a year. You know, all the metrics I just talked to you about earlier, high retention, high gross margins, those you could see in the 10, 12, 15, 20 times ARR, depending on how competitive it gets and how you rate on those metrics. So there's a wide um, spectrum of valuations kind of based on some of those key inputs. So let's talk about that, our first example. You talked about the small company with uh, poor net retention. If that net dollar retention is improved to, let's say, 110% or something like above 100, how much of the difference would that make? I think that would make a pretty big difference because if you assuming that your sales velocity stays the same, you know, not only have you improved your retention metric, You've also improved your growth, right? By definition, so your growth may have went from ten or fifteen percent to thirty percent. So I think you could easily see a multiple expand to the six or seven times ARR range if the net retention looks really good. And again, some of the other metrics are going to look better because you know just the way the math works with the net retention going up. So when you look at these companies, do you ever advise to the client that, hey, you should just hire a bunch of people for your customer success, build that up, improve your net retention, and then sell it? Does that ever happen? Yes, definitely. We look at businesses where we say, can't, do you think you can improve the net retention? And if you can, if you could make these changes, you would get a vast difference in valuation. 
I will say it kind of comes down to the business though and the customer base. So if the customer base is SMB, and a big reason why your net retention is low is because you just have customers churning for their own issues, right? They go out of business, they're just not reliable customers. That's actually really hard to improve. If your customers are more enterprise and you just have some holes in your product, or as you said, you're not doing a good job with the customer um, customer support and kind of upselling, I think that is an area where there could be a vast improvement. I will say, I think it probably is the hardest metric to improve. And it just depends on situationally whether you can make a big improvement or not. So I guess the point is, is it your customer or is it your product? If it's your product, you can probably improve that. If it's your customer base, that's a little bit harder to improve. Gotcha. On your website, there are quite a few very nice blog posts on different subjects. And one of them talks about the revenue model. And there is one model that seems to be gaining attraction, which is usage base. I'm curious, if you look at the revenue models, how is the valuation different from one to another? I think in general, as long as you have a a strong base of recurring revenue, so contractual recurring revenue. So a lot of the way these usage models work is there's kind of this base level of recurring revenue. Maybe in the contract, it looks like some minimum. And then you have this usage-based model. I think more and more, there's less and less of a difference between the valuations. And in some cases, actually in most cases with the usage-based model, if you have a client base that's growing or their usage is growing for whatever reason of your product, you will actually get better and better net revenue retention, right? Almost by definition, that's what drives the net revenue retention up. So I think what you're looking for is a good blend between the two. We still find some buyers and investors who just like the, hey, it's just truly recurring and there's no variability. But I think what we're seeing with valuations is you have some of that built-in increase based on usage, you just grow faster. And even though your logo retention might be the same, your net dollar retention looks a lot better because of that usage. So we're a big fan of, we call it SaaS Plus, because there's lots of other things that can drive, you know, not just usage, it can be other things. But we really like that SaaS Plus business model. It does um, create some interesting challenges in how you frame the data to investors or buyers. But overall, we think that's a, a superior model because of the net, net dollar revenue retention. Uh, let's talk about the non-recurring revenue because almost every single SaaS company has a component of that. How do potential buyers look at that? Do they take any consideration? Do they care about it at all? Um, like everything in life, it depends. And so what, it, what does it depend on? The way we tend to think about this is, as you said, most businesses have some form of non-recurring revenue. And sometimes it's pretty important, like um, implementation, for example, right? If you need a good implementation to get the product in and have it do well. We tend to bifurcate it into two situations. If the non-recurring revenue is call it less than I'd say 20% of total revenue, we tend to expect buyers to just apply the same revenue multiple or AR multiple to the entire revenue base, not the sum of the parts mm. analysis. If you get above 20%, you start to get into this range where buyers would do more of a, what I would call a sum of the parts valuation. So we're going to give you a really high multiple on the SaaS portion of your revenue, and then we're going to pay you almost nothing for this other form of revenue, You know, maybe one time or two times revenue. So I think that's generally how we think about it. So if you're above 20%, I think that's where you're in the danger zone of being perceived as something that's not really just pure SaaS. And so that's something a lot of folks have to pay attention to, particularly on the services side, because it's easy to let the services side of your business 
kind of get out of control, right? Customers want you to do more. I think you're much better off spent trying to streamline the way you implement software or how intuitive the software is to your client so that you can minimize that services piece of the business and really just focus on selling the, the valuable SaaS revenue. And speaking of non-recurring revenue, I'm sure because you focused on uh, bootstrapped companies, every once in a while you work with uh, companies that has on-premise software, right? And they try to sell themselves. And many of these companies try to transition to cloud probably before they sell, or maybe not. Maybe that's a primary uh, investment thesis of the buyer. But tell me a little bit about this type of scenarios. How often do you see these companies and how should they sell themselves? Great question. We we do see it a fair amount. And again, back to SaaS, you know, every, everyone wants a SaaS multiple. I think it's a very hard transition to make up front. And a lot of it has to do with the sales model. So you look at how you're um, compensating your salespeople, you know, if you were compensating them on a big license sale and now it's going to a SaaS model, that can be a tricky transition. So we've seen companies struggle with it. Where we've seen companies do well in that transition, I would say is two scenarios. One is where the pricing model has changed to look more like SaaS. So maybe the product's still on-prem, but we've transitioned away from license and maintenance to a more recurring nature. And we actually see that a lot. And there's some products where it's always going to be on-prem, right? If you're selling to the NSA, you're probably not going to be in the cloud, right? You're going to give them software that they control. So I'd say that to me is one of the more important elements is the business model because now you can calculate all these metrics that look like SaaS. Yeah. The second area where I think companies can do well to increase their valuation, a lot of them have been working on the SaaS model, right? The actual SaaS product, the true SaaS from a product perspective, not from a, a business perspective, and then start to show some transition there where they're starting to onboard either new customers or existing customers. And then what you can do is kind of talk about this reservoir of your traditional license and maintenance customers that you can then convert to SaaS. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more compelling to a buyer because now they see that as an opportunity as opposed to a liability. But definitely the true on-prem that hasn't made any transition, those will trade at a lower multiple. And we've also seen private equity firms start to specialize in that. So their idea is go buy these businesses for a lower multiple and then they go through the transition to SaaS, mm -hmm. hoping to get a big exit on, you know, big change in multiple on their exit. So we've seen some of the more value-oriented software firms take that approach because they don't really want to pay up for the SaaS business, true SaaS businesses. So they try to create these SaaS businesses out of a license and maintenance business. When the founder sells the company outright, how often are they subject to earnouts or some other long-term contracts? The first thing I would just say to any, anyone who listens to you regularly is that earnouts are really tricky and we don't see earnouts in hardly any of our deals. They're very tricky because your interests with the buyer are totally at odds once the deal's over. So of all the things that's ultimately litigated on a purchase agreement, that earnout is a big one. What we tell our clients is think of an earnout as worth zero, right? That's not the reason why you're doing the deal. So we don't see them that often at all. One of the main reasons is because SaaS businesses are so predictable. Mm -hmm. It's usually pretty comfortable to get buyers, or pretty easy, sorry, to get buyers comfortable with the projections of the business for the next year. We know what your retention rate is, right? We have a lot of data on that in the past few years, and they can pretty easily tell if you're fudging the number on new sales, right? If you're suddenly going to quadruple your sales in the next year and you've added one extra salesperson, no one's going to really believe that. Earnouts generally come in the situation where there's a big disagreement about what the business is going to do in the next few years. 
So unless you find this odd situation where you know there's a SaaS company going from five million to fifty million in ARR in the next year, there's usually just not going to be that big of a disagreement. And so that I guess that's a long way of saying we really dislike earnouts and would would caution everyone to stay away from. So when founder finally decides to sell the business, what do they need to do to get the house in order before they sell it? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Uh, we deal with a lot of bootstrap businesses. So this is our life, getting ready to go to market. But I think if people just remember one thing that we said about this, the most important thing for a SaaS business to get ready to go to market is getting your revenue by customer by month data. And this is, you know, all the metrics we just talked about come from this data to effectively tie to your monthly P&L, right? So this is what my P&L says my revenue is. Can I show that by customer by month? And then we go calculate all these key metrics and frankly, look for ways to maybe improve those metrics if you're not going to sell for a year or two. But any private equity firm that calls a founder or frankly, any banker, the first thing they would want to see is that revenue by customer by month. The other thing I would say about that is I'd be really careful about sharing that data um, with investors or buyers because what they do is go away and run their own retention metrics. And you know, we talk about retention like it's EBITDA, like there's one way to calculate it. I could probably think of about 30 ways to calculate it. Huh. And so what you want to do as a company is have a view on, you know, this is the definition for retention or definitions. There's multiple ways to look at it that makes sense for my business. And you want that to be a combination of truly makes sense for your business. And what's kind of the most aggressive marketing definition you can get away with? So we spend a lot of time thinking about how are we going to frame this to buyers? Can we use this tweak of retention because it makes sense for our business, but we get we can get people to kind of sign off on that definition? So you want to be very thoughtful about that and not just throw your data out there willy-nilly because, you know, as I said, it's one of the most important metrics for valuation. So you want to make sure you're framing that in the best light possible. How can you define it differently though? Like what do you mean by that? I'll give you a really good example for a consumer-based business. Let's say that you're selling your product to consumer or SMB and they pay you with credit card, right? Mm -hmm. And as you know, there's lots of issues with expiration dates on credit cards. Well, let's say that you, which would happen a lot, you would have a customer that their credit card expired. If you looked at the revenue by customer by month data, that would look like a churn, but then it comes back two months from now and it's back on. Is that churn or is that not churn? Gotcha. There's hundreds of different examples you could think of. Every business is pretty unique. And some of it's just about the cleanliness. I mean, another example we've seen is um, just kind of a data sloppiness issue where you refer to customer by this name this year for the contract. And then in the CRM, it gets changed to something else. If you just give them a flat file, right, that looks like churn. It's not churn. So a lot of times we'll see a 4 to 5% improvement in the retention metrics when we're able to get in and A, just get the errors out of the data that are just commonplace, and B, maybe be a little bit more aggressive about what the definition for retention is that makes sense for that company. How long does it typically take this whole sales process? You know, recently things have been going really quickly. And one of the big changes about COVID is how diligence is done. So in the past, a lot of diligence was done in person, whether it be accounting diligence. A lot of times people hire a market consultant and even, you know, lawyers and accountants. A lot of that is being done remotely now for obvious reasons. And that's really sped up the process because it's a lot easier to get on a Zoom than have, you know, five people fly across the country for a meeting. Our typical process is taking three to four, four and a half months now. And two years ago, I would have said plan on six months. 
but typically things are moving a little bit faster. I will give you a caveat though, that I think it's going to slow down a little bit between now and the end of the year. And the driver is, as a lot of you uh, listeners are aware of, obviously there's lots to talk about capital gains rates going up. So there's a lot of activity going into the end of the year. And like every other part of the economy, we're seeing labor shortages. So it's harder to hire accountants and lawyers to do diligence. And so we've actually started orienting our processes more towards and slightly favoring buyers who either control those resources, so they're internal or buyers who have lots of buying power. So big private equity firm or strategic who can get Deloitte or whoever the accounting firm is to focus on their project versus a smaller firm who may suffer more delays because they're just not as high on the totem pole for these diligence resources. I never remember that happening in my career before where we had, this was something that we thought about in terms of evaluating buyers. Interesting. What else goes into evaluation the potential buyer? How much of your choice of the buyer driven by the price they offer in versus some other criteria like, I don't know, maybe there is a culture that's important to the founder or et cetera? Yeah, you know, it really depends on the type of company. So what, what I tell our founders, we, we don't represent really VC-backed companies, but if we did, generally VCs are in it for what makes their IRR the highest, right? That's what they're incented for. So it kind of comes down to price. For our founders... I think it really comes down to the deal. So if you're doing a minority deal where you're not getting that much liquidity and you're bringing a new investor in, the fit is really important because you have most of your upside, you know, most of your upside is left in the business. You haven't cashed it out. So you might take a lower valuation to get a better partner that you think will drive the exit value higher or you'll have more control over. If it is something that looks more like a majority recap or a full sale, obviously you're giving up control of the business by definition. So the the fit is really important. But we see founders care about things like what's it going to be like for the employees if it were a, an acquirer? Is this going to be a good place for them to be? Is the business going to grow? We see legacy issues, right? Are they buying this to shut it down? Or are they really going to invest in the product? And so all those things tend to become really important to our clients. And so what we try to do is drive this competitive process where we can push the price in terms in our favor and get it really competitive. And then in the end, they're making the decision on some of those other factors because we have a good competitive process at high valuations. It really becomes about the other things in terms of making the decision because they have lots of options. What is the split between minority deals and the majority control deals that you involved in? For us, I would say it's probably about 70-30. And here's why. Founders either generally want control or liquidity. So you don't want to be in that situation where you, you give up a lot of control, but you don't get as much liquidity. And the problem with the minority deal is, you know, even if it's a clean deal from a structure perspective, meaning they're not taking away a lot more economic value from it in the future, there's lots of controls investors try and put in minority deals. And most of our clients who are founders are doing this transaction to diversify. And if you look at where valuations are, they're really high. So at this point in the market, founders are generally making the choice to get more liquidity, not less, given where valuations are. If we were at a different point in the M&A cycle where maybe valuations were much lower, I suspect you'd see founders doing more minority recaps. But I would say we see many more majority recaps than minority recaps. 
what are the some of the well-known private equity funds that are focused specifically on SaaS companies that you can name off the top of your head? Yeah, I think the ones we see a lot that we think understand SaaS very well and you know would be a good partner. And this has changed a lot. You know, ten years ago there were probably a few firms. Now there's many who have had good success. But I think the ones we see a lot in terms of SaaS, obviously there's some bigger names like uh, you know Vista Equity. We see Provident, PSG a lot in terms of some of these SaaS deals. Um, Silversmith is a firm that's done pretty well uh, with SaaS, but is a newer firm. Um, Marlin Equity, Frontier, we also see doing a lot of SaaS deals. So there's a lot of pure SaaS specialists, but you've also seen people just reorient towards SaaS a lot, even if they do other things. And those are examples of some firms we spend a lot of time with and think highly of. And when it comes to this purely SaaS-focused PE funds and the ones that more generalists, but they probably just enter in this SaaS field. Do you see any benefits of selling to one versus the other? Even the firms that are generalists have very dedicated SaaS teams with lots of, lots of experience. So in general, within that SaaS team, we generally see very similar capabilities to the pure SaaS investors. So I think they're just so specialized within their organizations, the benefits are largely the same, I think. But you do have to pay attention to how many, you know, how many investments have they done, what success have they had with SaaS. And so those are all very important. So obviously, many of our founders, people who listen to this podcast and uh, any founder in general receive inbound calls from all the army of cold callers from PE funds who want to get in before you even get involved. How should founders handle this? I would just say that you know most of our clients or prospects that we talk to are hearing from 40 or 50 firms at a time, right? And they might even get unsolicited term sheets. I think the key is to having a strategy to deal with all these firms, right? You're going to get a lot of reach outs generally from junior folks who are basically just trying to keep tabs on you, right? They're trying to figure out, is the business growing? Is this something we could invest in in the future? And they're just trying to keep their option open. There are some things you should be aware of in terms of sharing data, though. It wouldn't be uncommon at all, and we hear this complaint a lot, a PE firm is getting ready to do an investment in a competitor, and they're trying to get market intelligence. And so they're, you know, they're doing these calls to understand things about your business, A, to diligence the buyer, or A, to diligence the company they're thinking about buying, but B, that stuff can get transferred later on after a deal closes. So that's one thing I'd be careful of. And I'd also be careful of just... I would say giving too rosy of projections. So a lot of time they're trying to figure out how fast you're growing, what's next year going to look like. You know, they keep track of all this information. So if you tell someone you're going to grow 100% and you grow 40%, they then discount you later on when you talk to them, maybe when you're in a process talking to them about next year's numbers. I do think it's worth building relationships with highly reputable firms that, you know, are really reputable in your area. So, you know, do these firms tend to do a lot of SaaS deals? And just make sure you're talking to the senior partners at the firm and not the associates. At some point, it will become overwhelming, though. There's just too many firms calling in. It gives you a sense for how competitive the market is. A lot of the ones that are the most aggressive at calling, it's part of their business model because they are trying to get founders in a one-off where they can get a good deal, as opposed to participating in something that's more competitive where they know they won't win. So I would say the general rule is the more aggressive they are at reaching out, likely the less aggressive they will be on valuation. It's not always the case, but um, there's a pretty close correlation. So is it is selling company like uh, selling a house where you need to have real estate agent, in this case, uh, real, uh, investment bank representing you or not necessarily? 
I mean, I, it kind of depends on the size of the deal that you're doing. I'll just say this. The most sophisticated PE firms, when they sell their portfolio companies, hire bankers. Mm-hmm. A lot of these same PE firms try to talk these private companies out of hiring bankers when they're <laughs> bidding. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. So how should people find you, the, the founders who want to sell their companies, and when should they start calling you? I think for us, we want to build relationships ahead of time. So like as I said earlier, we probably talk to companies on average two or three years before they ever think about you know, selling the business. And we're trying to provide them some advice on... you know, One of the things we do a lot is look at some of their metrics and say, you guys are very good on these two or three metrics. Here's where you could probably use some help in terms of driving valuation later on. You know, If you're a fast-growing SaaS business, we'd love to talk to you at any time and build that relationship over time. Well, Mike, thank you very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for your time.